First Chronicles 16, 34-36 Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. Praise the Lord.
Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining with us. Um, you know, the enemy may try to stop and work through technical glitches, but that's not going to stop the Lord, and we're going to see a victory this morning. And so we pray that um, you would be encouraged, and we thank you for the worship team, and we pray that you'd be blessed by the word here this morning. Um, so I thought that I would open this way. I wanted to share a list of things that are better uh, by doing church at home. What's better by sitting in your living room and doing church at home, and maybe five things that are better about being here at church. And so point number one of why it's better to do church at home, at home you can drink your coffee in the sanctuary you can wear your pajamas to church except we all know that Jim Thompson's sitting at home with a tie on right now watching the service your pews they can recline Uh, you got that lazy boy and you can just sit back and relax as you watch church there's no more announcements Um, we can all say amen and rejoice at that time And you don't have a pastor desperately trying to scramble to get you back after five minutes of greeting time and wrestling with you that way. Now, there are some things that are certainly better about being in person. I'm sure that some of you by now are missing a Bernie Shoren joke. Uh, But as Dan Forsberg reminded me, Bernie's stuck at home on quarantine, so all of his jokes are now inside jokes. (laughs) But I did call Bernie this week and I said, give me one. You know, people are probably missing it. Lay it on me. He said, you know, in this season... Bernie said he's really been working out, uh, you know, and he's up to 340 sit-ups. He says every day he sits up in bed, and for the last 340 days he's done so, so he's done 340 sit-ups. What else do we miss? How about missing Carol Morgavage yelling, here, here, during the middle of a sermon? Uh That's always gold. Or how about Bill Oakley uh, at communion time when it's time to take the bread saying, eat it? Uh, One of my all-time personal favorites. Uh... But for real, we miss things like Erica being the first one to give you a birthday card and receiving your first birthday card. We miss Kathleen playing the violin and hearing the violin, and we certainly miss the fellowship and being together. But we're thankful this morning that there's a few things that haven't changed like this. I got my sturdy old rickety um, pulpit with me this morning to make us feel right at home. And uh, more importantly than that, we have the Word of God, which is eternal and true. And so let's open that this morning. As we continue on um, in Exodus, and so you're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, if you want um, to start there. We're continuing on. Last week we talked about um, the journey that these Israelites are on, and they've, they've come from the Red Sea, and then they were laid, led to the place of Mara, and then after that to the oasis of Elam. And I would like to say that that was the end of their journey, and it was smooth sailing from then on. But if you continue through chapter 16, you find that they once again find themselves without food to where God miraculously provides manna and quail from the heavens and provides food for them. And then after that, they enter a place again where once again they have no water and they're grumbling and they're complaining again to Moses. And so this time, God instructs Moses to strike the rock with his staff and all of a sudden, water is produced. And so we pick up the story here after all of this, right? Red Sea, Mara, Elam, a place of manna and quail, and then once again being without water. And this time we find that the Israelites, the Amalekites, are about to attack. The Amalekites see the Israelites um, in the middle of this desert and they're like, that's easy prey. We're about to take them captive. And they were about to go to battle with the Israelites. And for any of you... um, Well, very few of us actually probably know what it's like to actually go into battle. For the brave few that have entered our Marine Forces or our armed services and have served in the Army, you know what it's like to enter into battle. You never want to enter into a battle without a battle plan. You know, first you probably send people in to spy, do do some reconnaissance, to scout back on the area, and then you 
form you form a plan. You know where you're going to attack, what the fallout plans are, whose responsibility is what, and the best laid attacks are those um, that are well planned and well thought out. If you've ever seen any of the movies about the the death of Osama bin Laden, you saw all that they did to prepare and to prep, and even the trial runs that they went through. And while none of us will probably experience that here on this side of earth, or very few of us, it doesn't mean that we are also without our battles. Um, every day we fight battles. In fact, Paul uses terminology in Ephesians 6, like putting on the spiritual suits of armor. Um, In 2 Corinthians 10, he says that we wage with weapons of warfare. And so every day, we face battles of different kinds. You might not face a physical battle where your life isn't threatened, but every day, you likely face a battle of flesh versus the spirit of God. Right Where the flesh desires and wants to do something, and it wants to seek out its own interests and do what's right on its behalf. You know, it wants to lash out in anger. It wants to do something out of selfish ambition. It wants to take advantage of a situation and be greedy, while the Spirit of God stands opposed to that and calls you to God's perfection and holiness and to something else. In fact, Galatians 5, um, verses 16 says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. It says they are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And so the flesh and the spirit, they wage war on each other. And they go to battle. And if you're a Christian, or if you've walked with the Lord, you know what this is like. That the flesh desires its selfishness and what, what it wants, and the spirit of God, something else. And so you know what that battle is like. Maybe it's not a spiritual battle, but maybe there's a cultural battle. Um, If you're aware of that, or maybe you're leery of what's going on in schools between the ideologies and the philosophies and the thoughts. It's like, you know, this is what love looks like, or this is the way that you should act, or this is what morality looks like, or this is what, how or who you should be. And there's a cultural war going on that you know what the truth of God says, and you know what the Word of God says, and that there's things that attack that um, in our culture. You know, this is what sex should look like. This is what freedom should look like. You know, whether it's in our politics, this is the politics that you should subscribe to and align to. And we've seen that probably even more heightened um, through the news these days, that there is a cultural war going on. There is people vying for um, your attention, your affection, and your belief system. But maybe even one step further than that, maybe you're just wrestling with a personal battle. Maybe it's a sickness or an illness. So we've used the term, you know, people that are battling cancer. Uh, People that have financial trouble, they're in a financial battle. So maybe you're fighting an illness or a loneliness, or maybe you're battling depression. Maybe you're just stuck at home with your kids and you're just battling a two-year-old, speaking from experience. Uh, And so maybe you're just living to fight for your own sanity Um, But every day we face certain types of battles and certain types of struggles. And if we don't have a plan, just like it would be poor to enter war or to enter warfare without a battle plan, um, if we enter our personal battles, our cultural battles, and our spiritual battles without a battle plan, we're likely to be succumbed by the enemy. And so we pick up the story here um, where the Israelites are about to be attacked by the Amalekites and they're about to head into battle. And you've got to remind you of something here. This is a nomad nation. This is a nation that has just left Egypt, right? And so they're not trained, or they don't have equipped soldiers that are ready for war. They don't have even probably the right weapons for warfare. They, haven't had, they were slaves. They were servants. They were workers. So they're 
They lack the experience. They have their entire families, their wives, their children, their entire belongings and their possessions with them. And so they're ill-prepared for, for war. In fact, the Amalekites are probably thinking, this is an easy target. This is weak prey. Look at all that plunder that we can steal, and we'll just eliminate them like that. Because they're experienced in battle. They fought before. They have an army that is trained. Think of it this way. It's kind of like the NFL season this year. They're like playing the Eagles this year. They're going to be an easy target. Um, You know, it's a win on on the schedule when you know that the Eagles are on your schedule. And the same way the Israelites probably look like that to the Amalekites. You know what? This is an easy victory. It's not going to take more than a day. And so we pick it up. And so Moses lays out a battle plan for us. And it says this in chapter 17, verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so point number one, I almost want to make a side sermon, that this is the first place that we see Joshua appear. Joshua, the one that 40 years later would lead the Israelites into um, the promised land, that would drive out the Canaanites, the one that would be their leader, the one that would take over for Moses once Moses passes. And so Moses is instructing Joshua here, says, Choose some men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And so the first point is this, is that if you want to win big battles and you want to see victory in your life, you've got to start with the small battles. You've got to start by winning small. Start small, win big. Joshua is an example of that. Joshua, 40 years before he is about to become the leader, is getting his training and his practice right here with the battle with the Amalekites. That he's faithful in the little, that he's responsible to Moses, and he serves Moses even in the little things. And so it's in that where he is starting to learn, right? And we know later on that he goes to be one of the spies with Caleb to spy out the land. And so Joshua gets his training in the little things, and he starts small. Um, One wise father of Emmanuel Church once told me this, you know, um, and when talking about disciplining and raising little children, and sometimes, you know, my kids at the age of now, it feels like all you're doing is correcting, disciplining, and, you know, just correcting a certain type of behavior. And it can get exhausting, But he reminded me of this, was that, you know, what you are doing now is preparing them for later in life. You know, if you want a successful 18-year-old adult that knows how to abide by the law, knows what it is to be under someone else and to serve leadership and to be obedient, it doesn't start just at 16 years old, right? You don't start at 16 and say, you know what, now I'm going to prepare you, now I'm going to train you, and now you're going to learn what it's like to be prepared for life. Now that starts now, where my kids are nine months, one year, three years. It starts now being faithful in the little things, teaching them what it's like to be obedient to parents, teaching them that there's consequences to things in life. And the best way to prepare is to be faithful in the little. It can't start later in life. Now you can, but that's more of an uphill battle. If you start to wait till 12, you know what? Then I'm going to lay down some rules. Then you're going to learn the consequences. Then you have a harder battle than starting early. And so you have to be faithful in the little. We see this in David. David was ready and prepared to fight Goliath. Why? Because he was out protecting his flock and fighting off the lions and the bears, and he was prepared for battle. And so Moses had a plan of action, and it was to choose Joshua. And I almost chuckle at first, because when you read it, it says, Choose some men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Okay, Moses, what are you going to do? Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And you're like, all right. It almost sounds like if you've ever moved someone, um, Dan, you've probably experienced this, right? You know, the big heavy object, and it's like, you know, oh, I'm just going to wait to uh, let Dan get that one and pick that one up. Oh, 
you know, what are you going to do? I'll, I'll open the door and I'll make sure you don't trip over anything on the way, you know? And it almost at first glance seems like that. You know what, Joshua, you go fight. Um, you get your men, you rally around, and I'm just going to go stand on top of the hill and see what happens. But if we pay attention and we read further, we'll start to see actually who does have the pivotal role in this and who is a crucial figure in that. And so Moses, we know that he goes up to the hill with Aaron and her, and he takes them with him. But what does he go, what does he take with him? He doesn't take um, a sword or a spear or a shield. He takes with him Aaron's rod, the same rod that was caused the plagues to come across the Egyptians, the same rod that saw the Red Sea split, the same rod that Moses was able to strike a rock and produce water. And so Moses might not have what might be the most intimidating weapon, but he has the right weapon. He has the rod of the Lord. And so point number two is this, enter your battles with the right weapons. So we read on in verse 10 and through 13. It says, So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And so observe, this isn't a fight, some two-hour fight that was just over in a flash. This was an all-day affair. Imagine it starting in the morning, and as long as Moses held the rod above his hand, fully extended, the Israelites and Joshua saw success in battle. But I could probably stand here for the next ten minutes, and I would want to put my arms down. And imagine standing there all day, and that eventually, you know, the spirit may be willing, but right, the flesh is sometimes weak. And so you finally get to a place where you're exhausted, and you're weak, and so the rod would start to lower. And when that happened, the Amalekites started to gain ground, that the Israelites started to see defeat. So then it was whenever Moses lifted it up and had it fully extended, right, that they saw victory. And it says that he needed help, right, that he needed the help of Aaron and her to uplift him and hold the position. Um, but we see that the attention really is not on Joshua, it's not on his skills, it's not on how prepared of a soldier he was, it's not how powerful their weapons were, that the attention really starts to matter. What's going on up on that hill? You know, What is Moses doing? And is, is the rod held and fully extended, or is it down? And what our eyes are drawn to, and what's a really the powerful thing in this story, is really what's going on with Moses. And since so we've got to ask ourselves, well, what is it with this rod, and how does that translate to us today? Does that mean in the midst of my battle of you know, flesh and spirit, I just got to find a stick and hold it up over my head and pray for victory? Does it mean you know, my financial battles are going to be settled if I just you know, go outside and chop off a limb and hold it up? No. What, how does that mean, and what does that look like for us here today? Um, many people have translated this, and that this rod was obviously the rod of the Lord, but it was Moses on their behalf interceding and praying for God's presence to be with them. And as he interceded and prayed and uplifted the Lord, they saw success in, in battle. And so it comes back to what we said last week. It's all about prayer, right? The prayer of intercession. And we come back to that, that it isn't just something that is nice. If you want to talk to God, you can. That it is part of the battle plans, right? It is part of to be equipped. If you want to win the flesh versus the spirit, the cultural wars and the personal struggles, you need to have a prayer life and know what it is like to commune and fellowship with the living God. 
We see this as Moses had it uplifted and he was interceding on their behalf. Listen, it's not about how much willpower you have. It's not about how many good deeds you have. It's not about the sheer determination or courage that you might have. But it's about entering your battles with the presence of the Lord. And that draws back to to prayer. By prayer, that's where we have our communion, our fellowship, and where we find our empowering to walk out the things in front of us. When the Lord fights for us, when his presence is with us, we will see the victory. John Piper, in one of his most famous sermons um, to a bunch of college-age students at the Passion Conference in 2000, to 40,000 young people, preached a sermon that said, don't waste your life. And he reminded them of this. He says, you don't have to be a master at many things to be successful in life. You just have to be gripped and mastered by the one thing that matters. And that when your heart is gripped with the Lord and when your heart is filled with the presence of the Lord, it doesn't matter how weak you are, it doesn't matter how much you wrestle with sin, is that if you are filled with the presence of the Lord and that is the thing that grips your heart, you will see, you will see and find success in this life because he is undefeated. The Israelites at this point in time had the only thing and the only weapon that mattered. They had the rod of the Lord and they had the Lord on their side and they had the presence of the Lord with them. And because of that, they were able to see the Amalekites defeated. And this is a footprint for us. And that if we want to win our battles today and we want to see success um, in our culture, then we got to know God and know his word. Right? So that whenever some YouTube video comes up or some Instagram post or something that you see on Facebook and it sounds good and it sounds sweet and it sounds smooth, you know the word of God inside and out and you know if that aligns with it or not. And that you're able to discern and say, you know what, that isn't the, that isn't the truth, that isn't God's word, and that doesn't align with it, and we're able to spit that out. But so often, we don't, we're not familiar enough with God's word that we get pulled in every direction by something that sounds good. What does 1 Timothy say? It says that, you know, they were drawn away by their itching ears. Is you've got to know the word, you've got to know the truth, and you've got to know God's presence so that when culture, when politics, when government, and when people or teachers try to impose something on you, you know whether or not that it aligns with the Word of God. Hebrews 4 tells says that the Word of God is like a sword, right? It splits to the bone and to the marrow. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Much of the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6 is for defense. But here he gives us a weapon of offense, to go on the offense with. And what is it? The sword of his spirit, which is the word of God. And so you have to make sure that you have a handle on the word of God, that you know it, that you have read it, and that you've become accustomed to it, so you know what is truth and what is the lie. And you also have to have a personal prayer life um, to where you know what it's like to fellowship and to walk with God, to where you hear his voice. When you know that when it's flesh and the spirit, you know that this is what God is saying and this is what the spirit is saying as, and opposed to what is the flesh. I wrote this down. I said, if you don't know what it's like to battle flesh and spirit and you don't know what that conflict is like and you don't know what that war is like, then it's most likely that you're living in the flesh. Um, because once the spirit enters, guess what? It says that he wages war and to put to death the things of the flesh. And so if you have the spirit, he is going to go to war and battle with the flesh. I wanted to quote an ode him. I wanted to say it last week, but I'll say it this week. Um, if you've ever heard the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, uh, one of the lines says this, Oh, what peace we often forfeit." Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry things to the Lord in prayer. 
And prayer is not, it's, it's the lifting of the weight, right? It's in prayer that we find that God entering our situations and he's taking the weight upon himself and we find the answers and the solutions and it is where we see our victory. An author read, I read said this, Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way that we know God, the way that we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Prayer is our relationship and our connection. It's just as Adam and Eve, they walked with God. That was their prayer. They had fellowship and relationship with him. And if we want to see success and what Christ did on the cross was able to restore that to us so we can have fellowship with him. In 1 Samuel, Hannah prayed in her deep anguish. It says she prayed for a son. And what does God do? He answers by giving her Samuel. We see in the book of Acts as Peter was imprisoned and they were about to take his life and Herod was going to end his life that a group of Peter's friends were praying at their homes and all of a sudden Peter wakes up in almost what he thinks is a vision and he is set free, what? By the power of prayer. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Paul knew that his success in ministry depended upon lifting up all kinds of prayers and even requesting that others would intercede on his behalf. It's in our communication, our fellowship, and our ongoing conversation with God that we see him shape our hearts to his heart, conform our will to his will, to see his hand in the midst of our displeasures. It's where you find peace amongst the confusion. One last quote, it says this, Prayer is a battleground. We are reminded that prayer has often been the place where people rediscover faith and reestablish confidence in God and themselves. It's a battlefield where struggles for right desire are fought because in prayer, all desires are known and no secrets are hidden. And so if you want to see success, you have to have an active and engaging prayer life to where you know the fellowship of the Lord. But point number three, and we continue to move on, is that prayer, right, point number one, you got to start small. Win the small battle. Start by starting small. Number two, have a prayer life. And point number three is this, no man is an island. You cannot do and fight these battles alone. Moses knew this, right? He took Aaron and her with him up on the hill with him. And Aaron and her didn't just stand there and say, you know what, good job, Moses, you're doing great. You know, I'm so proud of you. And they weren't just simply cheerleaders just giving verbal accolations, and Moses was encouraged that way. No, they weren't just standing on the sidelines. They put the pads on, they put the helmet on, and they got in the game, and they were there holding up his right arm and his left arm. And imagine, they too were feeling some of the physical agony and pain, but they were a physical support to Moses. Somehow we got to fight this notion that we think that God just wants us to be big, bad, tough, and to do things alone, right? Many of us today, that if someone were to offer us help, we say, you know what, I don't need help. How dare you offer to help me? And our pride would almost be wounded to think that someone would suggest to help me in my weakness or my struggles or, my, or where I need help. 
We live in this era of self-sufficiency where we think that we have to do things alone and on our own strength and on our own ability, and that if we accept help or we admit faults or we admit that we need help, we almost think that it's like a sin or that we're letting God down or that it's weak. In fact, if we think about our own selves, our own lives and how we judge others, how do we respond when someone brings us something? You know, when they say, hey, I need help in this area, or hey, I'm struggling here, or hey, can you help me? Can you support me in this? Sometimes our thoughts are, wow, can you believe that they struggle with that? Or, wow, you know, um, I didn't know that that was going on in your life. And we almost act as that as a disqualifying thing, and, you know, we're on a scale above because we don't wrestle with that. But you know where the true shame lies, and where I would, or not the true shame, but where the true conviction should lie? is that that is our hard attitude. To, I hope that our pride would be convicted, that we would never look at someone else and say, you know what, look down on them because of their faults. Because here's the truth, is that to f- find success and to walk out the battles in life, you need other people. You need your Aaron and hers, and you need to do it as a community and body of believers. You were made to be dependent upon others. It says that Adam... It was not good for him to be alone, and he was given Eve. And we see that God give, gave us family as part of the network. And it says he does and works things in the body of believers, that Christ died for the church, not just us individually, but us globally, locally as a body, and that we're dependent upon the body for success in our, in our battles. And so if you're walking something out and you're struggling through something, and you're trying to do it alone, that's not how God intended you to walk, or God intended you to live. Is that He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ to depend upon, to lift up your right arm and your left arm, and to be there in the midst of your weakness. And not just to do it by saying, hey, good job, hey, you know, what's it say in James? What's it count you to say, you know what, you see someone without clothes, and you just wish him well? No, you are to physically offer him something, the shirt off of your body, and to feed him and to clothe him, and to be physically engaged. I know that some of us gripe against that and, um, you know, it feels good to be isolated and alone and it feels good to keep things, it's safer to keep things closer to the vest. And, you know, I like to, to be dependent upon me. I don't have to be hurt or worried about anything else. And I know that some of us, um, you know, would rather be isolated or are introverts and that's all fine and well, um, but that doesn't make it right. Um, because none of you were meant to do life alone or to battle alone or to walk through seasons and situations alone. Um, you need your Aaron and hers. How did Joshua see success? When Moses was, his, when was on his behalf interceding for him. And so you need people that when you're in your battles that you can say, you can call up and say, hey, I have this situation going on. Can you intercede for me? Can you pray for me? Can you lift up the, to the heavens for me on my behalf? And you also need those people right beside you that are going to get in the trenches with you. C.S. Lewis said this. He says that we're all different organs belonging to the same body. We all have one function and one purpose, but we all have a different part to play. And when one, one organ fails, so do the rest. And so all the organs have their different functions. The heart does something different than the liver. The liver does something different than the lungs. But if one of them fails, we start to see the failure of the, other, of the others. And so we're part of a body that needs to work and partner together to see victory um, today. Galatians 6.2 says this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so if we continue on, um, on reading that God's prescribed something to this, and I am, that's great, I don't have that with me, so I can't read it. But you can read it on the screen. Christina's got it up for you as you read it. Um, but basically, yeah, thank you. We have all kinds of things going on. I got without it. Here we go. Um, 
It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. There Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so for the first time in Scripture, we see the Lord instructing Moses to record something, to write it down. He tells him, write this down so that it can be remembered. You see this all throughout Scripture. This is why they built altars, or why they built Ebenezer's, or why at the moments where people encountered God, that they resurrected something. Why? So that in their difficulties, in their trials, or their seasons, or whenever they encountered it, they could remember the past successes and victories and moments with the Lord. And so this wasn't just written down to say, hey, this is a cool thing that God did. It was to remind them that the next time that they went into battle, the next time another nation raged up against them, hey, remember what God did here with the Amalekites? And so if you want to find success in your battles, walk out and relive some of the other victories that God has done in your life. And don't forget the faithfulness and the success of God in your past. But it says that Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Which is a unique name, one of the most unique names, I think, for God, that the Lord is my banner. What does that mean? Well, it really means what do we think of when we think of a banner or a flag or something today? You know, when a sports team wins a championship or when they win the Super Bowl, they usually raise a banner in honor or memory of that team. For us today, we fly the American flag. Why? Because that is our nation. That is our identity. We are American citizens. And so we fly the flag because that's what we identify with. Flags and banners become rallying points. If you can, I'm sure many of you can remember the picture at Iwo Jima where the men are fighting to raise the flagpole with the American flag on it. And it's something to rally around. It's something that we build pride in. It's kind of our identity, so to speak. And it's no different here um, in what the Lord means in that. The Lord is telling them, hey, you know, your identity and who you are as a people, I am making you my people. And when the nations look at you and when the other nations see you, you know what's going to be before you and what's going to be flying in front of you is the Lord and my hand upon you and my glory. And other nations will see that. And so the thing to take pride in, the thing to pledge allegiance to is that, that I am your banner. I am your rallying point. I am the one in which you identify with and find your identity. And so what does that mean today? We all probably can recite the Pledge of Allegiance and we pledge allegiance to our own flag. But today, right, we, pledge, we have allegiance to something higher than just the American flag. is to Jesus Christ and what he has done and he is our banner and he has called us to be a people of his own and made us his children, his sons and his daughters and that is the banner under which we fly. And that's where we find our courage and our strength to fight our battles. Why? Because I belong to him, and he is mine. And I fight on his behalf, and he fights in me. And so it's the thing in which I can identify with, and that the Jesus Christ is my banner. The Lord is our banner. We live for Christ. He's the banner that should be flying as we live our lives. I live for Christ. I am His. I belong to Him. And this banner is a proclamation of who I align with and who I identify with. But in closing, I want to point us to um, the true intercessor. That when we're standing 
um, on the battlefield and we feel weak and we feel small and we feel like we don't stand a chance. We're ill-prepared. We're unequipped. We don't got the right weapons or the right army. And in our own power, we are weak. Just as, when, just as I'm sure Joshua felt, where did they look? They looked to the hill and to see what Moses was doing. But now that Christ has come in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our frailty, when we look to the hill, we see the resurrected Christ standing in victory. And he don't need the help of anyone else. And he stands there alone in his strength and his sufficiency. And he stands victorious. So what do we look to and what do we cling to to find success in our battles? We look to him and the victory that he has won. And knowing that he is going to win the battle and he is never going to see defeat and that he lives in us. And so that's what we're reminded of, is that he fights for us, and that he not only fights, but he intercedes for us. You don't believe me? Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Think about that. Think about that. Christ is interceding for us. And in my weakness, I don't have to be strong. Why? Because he is strong. I need to be mastered and gripped by him. Why? Because he gives me the strength to fight. What's it say later in Romans chapter 8? It says, You are now more than conquerors because of Christ in you. And you're able to live a life of obedience. You're able to defeat the battles. You're able to stand in a culture that opposes God. Why? Because of Christ's work and his strength. And he is able. And so I want to close in singing this morning as we did. Um, We're going to see a victory. Why? Because the battle belongs to him. And he fights on our behalf. So I pray that you would join this morning and that you would sing that at your homes, Lord, that you were going to see a victory. Why? Not on your own strength, not on your own power, but because of his strength. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness fails, it won't prevail. Cause the God I know knows only how to triumph. My God will never fail. My God will never fail. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory For the battle belongs to you, Lord I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory For the battle belongs to you, Lord Thank you.
saw the picture of a weak, small, unprepared, unequipped army that fought and saw a victory because of the rod of the Lord and the staff of the Lord and his presence on their behalf. And today we have this in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So in your frailty and your desperation and your weakness, you have victory. Lift his name up today as a banner to which you align yourself and remind yourself of all that he has done and be encouraged.